0: Hey, it's Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. Coming up on the show, community co-host Nick Burns talks with two of the dozens of Yellowstone wildlife-related businesses calling for the reinstatement of gray wolf protections. They say Yellowstone wolf killings are impacting their businesses and livelihoods. Nick's also going to help me with our legislative update tonight. He'll talk clean air with David Garbett of the O2 Utah Foundation and Zach Frankel of the Utah Rivers Council. He was on just last week, but a day later, Utah Governor Spencer Cox and state agencies released the first chapter of Utah's Coordinated Action Plan for Water, and we wanted to get his take on that, as well as the opening of the general session of the Utah legislature. I'll share a conversation about community health workers, which, if Senate Bill 104 is successful, will codify and certify their role through the Department of Health. First, though, opening day of the Sundance Film Festival is tomorrow. And in our ongoing radioactive team coverage, I've got a top five from Cody D of Maximum Distortion, Utah's longest running heavy metal show. And you can hear it tonight at 1030. Here's Cody with his film picks. And with this pivot to all virtual now, Cody, it's upset a bit of the apple cart. How's your planning going?
1: Terrible, but I'm making it work Um yeah, they threw us a curveball this time around, and so I'm trying to navigate around it. And you know, it's Sundance; it's what I come to expect anymore.
0: <laughs> so, give us a couple of your top picks.
1: I was going to start the festival with uh, the film Eight Ninety Two. Now I don't know where I have it in the in the mix, but uh, Eight Ninety Two is about a military vet veteran, and he's injured. He was injured in the war, and he looking for his disability check from veteran veterans affairs and it's not showing up and he's on the brink of homelessness and having issues financially. So he, as a last resort, he walked into a Wells Fargo and said, I've got a bomb. And to me that is probably about the worst. (laughs) I mean, I can't even imagine being that that's what you have to do, but, um, Anyway, that's the story and so I'm really curious to see how it plays out and how they treat him in the courts and all the things that, you know, um go along with that. So I'm really really interested in this one.
0: Documentary or drama?
1: No, it's a narrative. Um kind of excited to see this one.
0: We'll have a post up from Cody so you can check out the trailers and all of these folks too. What's next on your list?
1: Next is a film called Alice and um Alice spends her days enslaved on a plantation, yearning for freedom, and then after a clash with the plantation uh, uh, owner, she flees through the forest, the neighboring forest from the plantation, and stumbles onto an unfamiliar site, which ends up being a highway, and soon discovers that it's actually 1973. Uh, This one is interesting to me to see how that journey goes from yesteryear to now, modern day, like, oh, my God, there's all this stuff. There's modern, you know. And, by the way, she's now free, I would imagine. Um, so I this one is really curious to me. I would really want to see how this plays out.
0: Again, more of the horror genre mixed with uh, issues of social justice and current events.
1: Yeah, very, very timely. That's, that's my second. Then uh, The Janes, which... I believe you, in talking to you prior, the Janes is, is one that we're, the whole team is interested in. And uh, this is about the seven women who were arrested and charged. And uh, they were the head of a clandestine network who used code names and blindfolds and safe houses and all that to protect their identities. And- uh,
0: Pre-Roe v. Wade.
1: Yes, and they provided um, services to women seeking safe and affordable, illegal, to your point, illegal abortion.
0: Past is present, past is prologue.
1: Yes, and they called themselves Jane. So it's a documentary and uh, should be really good. Very interesting to see how they navigated, and I believe this was in Chicago. Unfortunately, <laughs> we might be on the brink of going back to that.
0: Yeah, unfortunately. have a roadmap in this film and and within our own history. What else you got?
1: And then this one's kind of timely because she's back in the news because her son just died. Um, The documentary, Nothing Compares, which is a documentary about Sinead O'Connor. And uh, I think I read a couple of days ago, she's been hospitalized.
0: Yeah, she was very despondent and, and made a statement or two on social media about harming herself. So Wish all the best to Sinead O'Connor. I remember when she first broke on the scene with Lion and the Cobra and it just blew me away. Yeah. me became one of my favorites.
1: I think she blew a lot of people away. And you know that the, the Prince tune. Yeah. I mean, she, she took the world by storm. And then, of course, her Saturday night, Saturday night Live appearance with the tearing of the Pope's picture. So that's my next one. Nothing Compares.
0: Let's get one more from the Cody D top five list for Sundance 2022.
1: So this one, this one, I know you knew was going to be on my radar. Um, It's called Sirens and Slave to Sirens is the name of a a Middle Eastern band. And they're from Beirut. And it's an all all women metal, thrash metal band. And amid all of the, political unrest and unraveling of Beirut, five bandmates form a beacon of expressionism, resistance and independence. And I, we, we did on maximum distortion, I think it was about three years ago. We put, I think we did an all unsigned Middle Eastern um, uh, metal show. And it was really interesting to see how many bands, because I, you know, it's kind of, uh, I think a lot of these bands have to be really careful and, um, hide who they are and what they do and what they say, especially. So, uh, yeah, I'm really curious to see this, this one, because, you know, first off it's, it's five women and they're in a thrash metal band, which is my, my favorite genre of metal and um and just see how they navigate this whole you know being in the middle east and being women and you know playing the devil's music you know (laughs) everything everything that goes along with that and and i'm sure they have some anti-institutional
0: authoritarian -authoritarian. uh, anti-authoritarian
1: yes uh you know rhetoric of their own so uh, this one should be really good especially if you love metal
0: Cody D of Maximum Distortion, which you can hear tonight at 10.30. Those are his top Sundance Film Festival picks. The fest starts tomorrow. It is all virtual. Don't forget, sign up for your free account because there are locals screenings that won't cost you anything if you have that account. And all the Sundance ASCAP music concerts will be virtual and available to you at no charge. You can find more details in tonight's show notes. Or on our Sundance Film Festival page at krcl.org. Now it's time to start our coverage this evening of the legislature, the people's business going on on Utah's Capitol Hill. And joining us in our legislative update today, we have the returning Island Wave podcast host, Kamile Tripp. Hi, Kamile. Aloha. So, a week from today, it is Community Health Worker Day on Utah's Capitol Hill. And there is a bill we're ready to talk about, SB 104, that is being carried in the Senate by Luce Camille, still looking for a House sponsor. What would this do, Kamile?
2: So, it would provide guidelines for certification for community health workers. And I can't help but think of the pathways that it opens for state funding. Um, we've been able to get funding. through other efforts that community health workers work. Uh, help out with like prenatal care, infant care, um, diabetes, and uh, cancer treatments and stuff like that. But this way we could possibly present a need for our community health workers to be included on Medicare bills and Ah. be able to be reimbursed for their expenses. Because a lot of time community health workers will eliminate barriers for food and housing and spending their own money. So if we can get that money back to them, that would be the best case scenario. Um, And this bill could open up that pathway. And another one is just to empower community health workers to know that they're important, that their work is important and that it is appreciated by the community and vital to our um, survival in our diverse communities.
0: I think of community health workers as connective tissue to those parts of our community that are disconnected or disaffected or marginalized. Um, they help connect the dots to folks who think they otherwise can't afford access or aren't included for whatever perception or misperception there might be. And so that's why we're shining a light, everybody, on community health workers. I'm really excited to see this this codification in the law of what a community health worker is, what they do, how they do it, a certification. And you've asked uh, a community health worker like yourself, you are one as well, to join us and share their story. So let's meet Nisi La'a. Hi, Nisi. How are you? Hi, Laura. I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Introduce yourself to our listeners and in particular about your community health worker role.
3: Yes. Hi, everyone. My name is Nisi Laha, as Laura mentioned before. Um, I am a community health worker with Pacific Island Knowledge Straction Resources, aka PICTAR, which is a Nonprofit organization here in the wonderful state of Utah, but we don't limit ourselves to just Utah people. We also service other areas as well. Just um, overview of the organization I work with before I jump into my role as a CHW is that um, we work in three areas, which is empowered living services, cultural preservation, and economical development so of course with cultural preservation comes along with um per, um preserving our pacific islander heritage here in utah by offering um our PAO group, our Pacific Islander Film Series, and also our Be'au, um literary, li- literary Group. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. And tell I'm folks still...
0: what Payau stands for, too.
3: Yes. So it's the Pacifica Enriching Arts of Utah. So our collective um, group of Pacific Islanders that are talented in their works, in such as art, um, dance, um, anything that involves craft of showing off their talents in many ways. And then along with our economical development, we have our um, Salt Lake City, um, Pacific Islander Chamber of Commerce. We just changed it from our Salt Lake City Business Alliance. So we're still in that transition, but they um, assist our Pacific Islander um, businesses here in Utah, but also not limited to just Utah. We just had our wonderful meet and greet in our Arizona last week. And of course, coming back to our Empowered Living Services, which is more directed towards our case managers and CHWs, community health workers like me. Um, We help service our communities in any way that we can um, when it comes to victim advocacy, um, advocating for our um, community members through getting rental assistance, Mortgage assistance, food assistance, just any assistant they can think of, we got it for them. So along with our CHW, of course, we have that wonderful bill um, in the legislative um, bills that um, Kamayle mentioned before. Um, I will be joining the wonderful CHWs on the Hill next week the, on the 26th. So, of course, um, CHW work is very meaningful to me. Um, of course, I've been doing it for about three years. Um, um, I've been with PICTAR for about five, but of course, we've been doing this work for a long time and it's this bill is long overdue. So I'm glad that I'm able to be a part of this, um, hopefully, historic monument that we're about to do. <laughs> but um, as my work as a CHW, I am one of the project managers over our CCP project, which CCP. is the the COVID uh, partnership project with the Utah Department of Health and along with our other wonderful CBOs that we have partnered in helping educate our community with COVID education and vaccinations and anything that we can do to reach our community members um, through our networks as we pass along the things that we learn um, online and then we can pass it along to the community. So, um, yeah. Laura,
2: uh, PICTAR was one of the first organizations to hand out at-home testing kits. Um, a last A couple of weeks ago, my family had a scare and Nisi dropped us off a COVID care kit. And I, I know that they do that for many families. And it, it's not only the Pacific, Pacific Islander community. Our organization wants to serve all of our community because they are our neighbors and friends and allies. Community um, also, health workers in
0: particular, though help to identify those pockets of our community that are not connected to these resources, to help them uh, realize they're there and access them and drop off COVID healthcare kits.
2: That's right. Uh, We have a really large uh, Micronesian community in Utah, and they have community health workers who can help identify their needs. And then we work together, CHWs, we work together to bring each other resources and even remove barriers for one another. If there's somebody that I'm talking to in an organization who is very receptive to cultural awareness, I want to introduce them to my other CHWs for all of their needs as well. Since both of you are so heavily involved
0: with PICTAR, our Pacific Island knowledge to action resources. What are you hearing in the Pacific Islander community given the underground underwater earthquake in Tonga and the lack of communication? Cause internet's been cut off. Have anybody in your circles
3: of PICTAR
0: or your own family and community circles gotten any word? What's the word?
3: Yeah. So um, with my part, of course, our executive director has many ties and also her husband as well, Tutonga, and so far they're um, in disconnect still. Of course, with the internet um, disconnection and also not being able to reach to their relatives out there. So of course, um, a lot of a lot of things running through their mind. They're still worried. Um, just we are strategically planning how. Our organization can help um, when it comes to the point where we can, where we would possibly um, have supplies. Um, I know there's a lot of people doing GoFundMes. And collecting their own funds fundraising for the islands of Tonga that has been um, affected but at this point we're just in those planning stages but of course we're also praying for our um, brothers and sisters back in the islands um, just making sure that they're okay and hopefully when the time comes because of course with the borders being closed it's big being making it harder for the peoples in the states to you know do things. Of course, we can't just go there and help. We just have to be mindful of that um, because with COVID and the COVID and with all of those things going on, we are unable to, uh, we just have to do it from afar. Hopefully we can be able to be successful, but right now it's just the waiting game of hearing what's going to happen and we're just waiting until they're be, they'll be able to reach us.
0: Well, please and, pass yeah. on love and concern from from Radioactive. And when when you know uh, of any community drive, we'd be happy to amplify what the call is to the community to help. Once we know, that's, I think, which is worse than the initial news is not being able to reach folks as easily mm-hmm. as we had before, Nisi.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I know that the PICTAR has an organization meeting tonight and they plan on establishing some of those um, uh, avenues that people can provide support, monetary and other. I also have friends on Facebook who are posting pictures that they've received from their family members um, in many different ways because the communication systems are down and they heavily rely on the Internet. What are you seeing uh, in these posts? Well, um, so they did also conduct flyovers, and that information is available um, through CNN through your trusted uh, website. Uh, there is devastation to the land, but there are signs of life. There are people cleaning up. There are um, animals uh, that you can see in the photos. And there was one post about uh, a group of people in Tonga who came out and hand swept the the airplane uh, landing the runway. At, for the runway, thank you. And to, so that planes could land and take off. So this is the way that the community is just being resilient. And I know that our people of the Pacific are used to weather and we're used to um, these types of devastation and, and the way we repair is to unite as a community.
0: Thank you so much, Nisi and Kamile for the update on what's what you know is happening back in Tonga through your connections here in Utah but also for helping us to continue shining a light on community health workers, a vital uh, part of our COVID plan here in Utah. And I don't think that folks know enough about the work that folks like you and Nisi do, Kamile. So thank you so much to both of you for being on the show and good luck on Community Health Worker Day a week from today on Utah's Capitol Hill. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Laura. And make sure you go to hhs.gov and order your at-home test kits. Thanks, Nisi.
0: Thank you. Nisi La'a and Kamayle Trip. Check tonight's show notes for links to the Island Wave podcast and, of course, PICTAR Pacific Island Knowledge to Action resources. I'll also have a link for SB 104, the bill that we talked about, which would codify and certify community health workers. I'm Laura Jones, and when we come back, community co-host Nick Burns will continue our legislative focus. We've got water and clean air coming up next. The Utah Black Artists Collective
4: connects and showcases artists of color throughout the state. The nonprofit also offers a mentorship program for young artists of color. More details at ublack.org. That's UBLAC.org.
0: Utah Naloxone trains the public on how to save a life with naloxone, the antidote to an opioid overdose that's completely legal for anyone in Utah to carry. For online training, visit Utahnaloxone.org.
4: KRCL, your community connection since
2: 1979.
0: Welcome back to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 Democracy Now! followed by mixtape at 8, maximum distortion at 10.30, get your rude awakening at 3 a.m. Our full programming lineup is available online at krcl.org, including the last two weeks of any show on demand. And now continuing our coverage of the people's business during this day two of the general session of the Utah Legislature, Community co-host Nick Burns has two conversations to share with you. First up, Zach Frankel of the Utah Rivers Council is back to comment on Utah's coordinated action plan for water released by Governor Cox's office a day after he was on the show last week. Here's Nick Burns.
5: Zach Frankel, welcome back to Radioactive. It seems like this is something we keep getting to do, talking about water.
6: Well, thank you for having me, Nick. You know, we have to talk about water so frequently because Utah has procrastinated doing anything about water for two decades. So we're we're packing 20 years of policy need in you know, one
4: short (laughs) legislative cycle.
5: Well, you're very kind to say procrastinating when other words could probably be used. But here we are, you know, the legislative session, the the wisdom from on high up on the hill is now waving over all of us, and we're hearing a lot of hype about the lake, the Great Salt Lake, uh, and this coordinated action plan for water, which, again, the governor's office released just a few days ago. What do you think about any sort of progress or help or any other thing that we ought to be watching out for?
6: Well, Nick, that's the most insightful observation that one could say, hype. You know, the problem in water right now is that there is so much marketing hype, so much propaganda, so much disinformation. And I think that Utahns are having a hard time separating fact from fiction. There's a a special interest in water. There's a bunch of lobbyists in that statehouse, scores of them, working to advance the same old tired water policies that don't do justice to those of us in Utah that want a sustainable water policy, that want to see rivers and lakes to continue to have water in them. And so there's been a lot of propaganda coming out of our state, some sectors of our state government, unfortunately. Um, so, so understanding that it's hype and understanding what's fact and what is not is probably the most important thing to understand. Utahns need to just ask themselves, is this real or not?
5: Because on the one hand, oh, let's save the lake. Let's save the Great Salt Lake. Oh, my God, it's going to be terrible. And on the other hand, let's build a pipeline here. Let's put in a dam there. Um who's gonna have to get by with less? I noticed in the governor's um, missive, if you will, that agriculture was clearly mentioned. Uh, And yet I know there are a lot of people who think, gee, we'd have plenty of water if we grew less alfalfa, but then that puts those farmers out of work potentially. So any, gosh, crystal ball?
6: Yeah, really good question. So, you know, the biggest targets In Utah's failed water policy, there's three of them. Number one, there are the fish and wildlife species that need water to exist. And so our rivers and lakes have suffered from Utah's failed water policy. And that's going to continue to happen because the lobbyists make money diverting water. They make money selling water and they want to sell as much water as they can. And unfortunately, that's particularly true of just a handful of water suppliers. There's some great water suppliers in Utah to be sure that are ethical, but unfortunately there's a handful that are definitely not. And some of them employ lobbyists to make sure we keep wasting billions of dollars on unnecessary diversions that will dry up our rivers. The second audience that's gonna be really impacted by Utah's failed water policy are the indigenous peoples, especially the Ute and Indian reservation which have water rights to the colorado river that the state has refused to recognize um the utah is overusing its rights to the colorado river today because of its failed water policies and that overuse is coming out of the utes um tribal water rights which are you know ancient you know which which predate the statehood of of utah so so (laughs) That's the second population. And of course, the third population, ironically, are the farmers, because these water districts are urban water districts that deliver water to urban populations to continue to waste water. You know, residents of the Wasatch Front use 100 gallons more water per person each day than residents of Denver. And that's because of our failed water policies, particularly at the state level, which water lobbyists are working to protect and keep going forward. And so the farmers are losing their water supply to the urban population. So those are the three targets, unfortunately, of Utah's failed water policy.
5: So if we wouldn't flush our toilets 100 times a day, some farmers could potentially stay in business, I mean, to really cut crassly. Um, I wonder... I wonder about this governor's, you know, our state, we have this plan It's going to be released in four chapters throughout the year. The vibrant communities um, portion, which is the first part, conveniently comes out after the legislative session.
6: <laughs> yeah, I'm not uh, sure what's going to be in that piece. What I think the real question is, is who's writing this? Um well, uh, what we've seen on the water section is it's clearly been written by water lobbyists. And we're particularly interested to know um, who in the governor's staff has been meeting with which water districts and what their role has been in crafting this continued failed water policy. You know, the governor released this document trying to create a blueprint for our future. Uh, around at least the sector on water. And we are seeing the same old thing. It advocates for the advancement of Bear River development and Lake Powell pipeline, these unnecessary $6 billion of government spending being proposed. And then it kind of gives lip service to a lot of water conservation. You know, there's yeah. some good things in there to be sure. But, you know, as Utahns, we really need to demand a sustainable water supply and sustainable water policy and an end to wasteful water use. And the document falls short of that, unfortunately.
5: Yeah, and let me correct what I said. That Vibrant Communities was actually the second of the four. And the first report actually already came out talking about infrastructure. So for listeners, I want to make sure to make that correction. I know, Zach, that you'll be keeping your eye on this. Um, I know that I'm trying to save water. I guess we need three three million other people to do similar. But uh, your website and how best to track What's going on up on the Hill?
6: So our website is Utahrivers.org. And we always have a bunch of information on there about what's happening in the state house. And listeners can sign up for emails and on our social media channels as well to follow what's happening. You know, we, we're just starting the session. You know, we got about 200 bills in the House that have been unveiled. Oh. And we need to brace ourselves. There will probably be more than a thousand pieces of legislation coming for during this legislative session, so the majority of the bills have yet to come, and we as Utahns, we all need to gird ourselves to prepare for the next, no. you know, six weeks because there's still yet to, lots to come.
5: It, it ought to be, you know, Zach, it ought to be a drinking game, but I guess there's not much humor in that. Zach Frankel, thank you, as always, for taking time to join us on Radioactive, and I'm sure we'll want to catch up with you during the session.
6: So thank you, as always. Thank you for having me. Great to oh, talk to pleasure. you, Trevor.
5: Sticking with our eye on the people's business up on the hill, I've got another guest working on an issue at the Utah legislature. This one to do with clean air. Dave Garbett of O2 Utah Foundation and what his nonprofit is calling Prosperity 2030. There is hope for cleaning up our air. Dave Garbett, your group, your nonprofit O2 Utah, you have a solution that could work when it comes to air quality. And I wonder. You know, you've know, you got background, you've got graduate degrees. Again, people know your name from the construction and home building side. You ran for mayor in Salt Lake. Tell me a little bit about O2 before we get into Prosperity 2030.
4: Yeah, first of all, great to be here. Uh, Nick, thank you so much. Sure, my pleasure. O- O2 Utah's group that I started about two years ago, and the whole premise from this was looking at what is the driver behind the um, legislation, both here in Utah and in DC. And so often it seemed the recipe, actually corporate America is very good at this. They get invested in campaigns, they make donations or get behind candidates, then they build relationships, and then they ultimately give them model legislation. And sounds like a simple formula, but I wanted to replicate that. So O2 Utah is a little bit different, uh, like traditional nonprofits. We can get in, um, involved in elections, something that most nonprofits are prohibited from doing. So we can campaign mm. for candidates, back candidates, support them, help them when they need the help. So that then we can start to build those relationships and give them model legislation. So that was the whole premise behind O2 Utah. And, Prosperity 2030 is really part of that framework. It's model legislation that we've developed. The whole goal is to do something about our terrible air. I mean, it's in our face today. It's we, in your lungs we, today. Yeah, in your lungs today, better said. Yeah. Prosperity 2030 is an effort to, it's, it's a suite of policies and proposals to actually uh, make a big difference on air pollution. The whole goal of that package is to reduce pollution by 50% by 2030.
5: Okay. And I want and I want to talk about some of those details, but this is intriguing to me. O2 Utah a nonprofit. And yet you're talking about being involved in elections. So 501c4? Exactly.
4: Yep. Okay. 501
5: C4. Because I'm sure we have some attorneys in the audience and I just want to <laughs> keep that I want to keep that straight. You know, when I first came to Utah, albeit a long time ago, for a job interview, everybody took me out to lunch and they said, oh, we're so happy there's not an inversion today. And I'm like, huh, what? And they were pleased because, you know, I could see the ochres and you could see all the mountains in every direction. And little did I know when I showed up a couple months later, it was all socked in with crappy air. So this is nothing new. And yet nothing seems to get done. But if I understand you correctly, O2 Utah, it's kind of a fight fire with fire. If if capital is organized up on the hill, you're creating a nonprofit to be organized up on the hill.
4: Yeah, precisely. And okay. I think we've seen firsthand, you know, why is it that we can't have clean air in the state of Utah? Uh, there are some very organized, concentrated, powerful interests that benefit by this lack of action that we take. They profit when we do nothing. And they're very good at that model that I talked about, investing in campaigns, lobbying, and and ensuring that legislators have a reason not to act.
5: And I want to ask about um, Kirk Cullimore, who many listeners know from his advocacy for landlords, but he's also on board with this Prosperity 2030. Um, Tell me about that. Tell me about that particular legislator coming on board.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a confluence of some serendipity and many different huh. things. But uh, Senator Colomore, we actually started these conversations more than a year ago. Okay. And he expressed to me that air quality was a concern of his. You know, he does surveys of his constituents. And the last survey that he had done, his constituents identified air quality as their number one concern. Um, he also talked about this when he announced that he was going to, to work on this legislation, he's got kids. And it's, you know, as a parent myself, I'm certainly, it has increased the level of enthusiasm and interest I have in this topic. When I realize it's not just my lungs that are at risk, but you know, these people that I feel a lot of my kids, yeah. that I feel particularly concerned about. And so those were things that he identified, um, He has worked on some environmental bills, obviously not as as well known as some of his other projects, but he has worked on some environmental bills. Uh, So it was really those conversations and um, talking to him about this that got that ball rolling and got him interested in doing this work.
5: Okay, so Senator Cullimore, who else is working with you or who else have you been in touch with in the Senate or the House on this?
4: We're trying to have conversations across the board with okay. Republicans and Democrats and introduce this topic and, and start slowly. You know, we're not under any illusions that significant legislation like this is something that's easier happens overnight, but we're having those conversations and trying to lay some of the groundwork. You know, it's it's a fairly complex area, and our legislators are all part-time and their day jobs are mostly things other than air quality, air, air quality, yes. oh.
5: so. well, let's, let's jump into prosperity 2030. The idea is your legislation, again, you've got a fairly major senator on board already, would cut, as I understand it, cut air pollution by half in nine years. Um, that seems ambitious, but also I suspect doable. What we've seen before in Utah, and I'm thinking of Governor Herbert recently, a lot of what he advocated for cleaning up the air was actually federal legislation, right? The feds are going to clean up gasoline, and that would help us. But tell me about Prosperity 2030 and what it is you want to push to clean up our air that we can do here through the legislature.
4: Yeah, and you know, I think that's something that's actually intriguing for Senator Colomore and for some of the Republicans that we've talked to. Really, what the state of Utah has done on air quality is simply um, rely on federal regulations to clean our air. It's because of federal laws and regulations related to vehicles, because of federal laws and regulations related to things like the furnaces in our homes that we've really made some improvements in Utah. Of course, you'll listen to politicians and they'll take all the credit. And in fact, they'll they'll slap and bite that hand that feeds them, so to speak and yes. complain about the feds forcing us to do things but it's thanks to that that we've made progress but the state itself has never said actually we want to be we want to control our own destiny we want to do something about vehicles to ensure that we're we're having clean air we want to do something about the homes and buildings in our valleys to ensure that we have clean air that's part of what prosperity does i would say that prosperity is you know forever we've said let's have clean air Compare it to brownies. Everybody says we want brownies, but we've never had a recipe for baking brownies. And that's what Prosperity is. It's that suite of policies. You know, and if I can really stretch this analogy, sure. the way that this is typically dealt with is people at the legislature say, you know, I think ultimately one day we want brownies. Let's Let's add a tablespoon of flour this year. And that's yeah. it. They don't know what else they're going to add. And in fact, you'll have lots of discussions where people are putting things that are actually taking us backwards, putting in the wrong ingredients, but nobody's looking at a recipe.
5: Yeah, what kind of flour and should that be gluten-free flour? or on? So give me some specifics. What exactly is in this recipe for cleaning our air? What would you like to see the bills actually say and do? I mean, low hanging fruit, big hanging fruit?
4: All of those things. At a high level, the most important thing for the state is to actually care and to do something about vehicles
5: okay. and about
4: our homes and buildings. These, Those together are creating most of our problems, both in the summer and the winter. And right now, as far as the state is concerned, they all there is almost no care whether you're driving the cleanest car on the road, if you're driving an electric vehicle with no emissions. In fact, if anything, the state will punish you or if you're driving the dirtiest vehicle. Again, the state's actually gone out of its way to say, for example, with the vintage plates, hey, if your car is really old, meaning that it has basically no pollution controls, we're not even gonna make you get emission tests. We're gonna use this this nifty plate that exempts you from all of that. (laughs) So we need to develop a program where we show people we actually care. Um, And and what Prosperity does is similar to the way that the state treats vehicles for road funding. You know, everybody understands that if you drive a vehicle you're gonna pay gas tax. And that that gas tax is commensurate with how much you use that resource. So the more you drive, the more you pay. But we don't do anything similar to that with air quality. And so that's what Prosperity does. It provides incentives, um, some rebates, and then also tells people if you're choosing to drive the dirtier vehicles on the road, you're gonna to need to pay more because you're causing more of a problem. So that's vehicles, homes and buildings. And I think this is one of the exciting things, you know, let me just take a second to say this, we're at a unique time because while we have this terrible problem, I don't think we've ever, like we do today, had the technology to have millions of people living on the Wasatch Front, but also have clean air, be able to heat our homes, be able to get around. And we're at a point where we have that. So especially when it comes to homes and buildings, we have builders doing it today, building it be- Uh, homes and buildings that are completely emissions free. Uh, There's no reason why we can't move in that direction other than lack of political will.
5: And we've often, I mean, in the past few years, we've actually seen the legislature balk and not pass rules, you know, to tighten up homes and to help. So I think there's a huge lobbying arm there. I remember one of the arguments from a few years ago was, Oh my God, it'll make a house cost a thousand dollars more you know, and yeah, it would, but you know, a house is 300, 400 grand. Seems a pretty small price to pay for clean air. I know we have to let you go. Go ahead. I just
4: wanted to say one thing on that. That's We've actually turned a corner there. And today, the builders in the Valley who are building buildings that are emissions free are finding that upfront, worst case scenario, there's no difference in cost. In fact, most builders save money and then for operations will actually save money. So we're seeing that in practice. We've got some good research from the Rocky Mountain Institute in Denver finding the same thing. The University of Utah did a comprehensive analysis. If they switched to full um, emissions-free construction and found that for residential would save them a bundle of money. So it is actually, we've turned a corner and it's cheaper to do it today.
5: Wow. Not to mention you could use that as a selling point when you go to sell the home, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I know it's been an issue. I know you've got an event Thursday. You have a webinar, like a kickoff event. Tell folks about that.
4: Yeah. They can learn more about that at our website or on the socials uh, in O2Utah. And our website is O2Utah.org. What we're doing is just getting people together to update them on the efforts that we've been making up at the Capitol. And Tell them how they can help us. Because again, we're at this great spot. We've got the recipe, we've got the technology. What we need is to address the lack of political will. And this is where individuals really will make a difference. Just a few people contacting their legislator and senator and sticking with them can really make a difference. And the whole goal is that we start to convene those groups and have those discussions and tell people what they can do to make a difference.
5: And there ought to be a metaphor in there for your idea of a recipe with brownies, you know, spreading some sugar around um, up on the hill. But Dave Garbett, thank you, O2. It's, I I like the notion that you've got something attainable. Here's a goal, here's how we wanna get there. Again, legislation will have to be passed to sort of push these incentives. I know they're talking about road tax and, and how that gas tax and whatnot would work, but maybe we need to have you back and see what the legislative folks actually come up with this session.
4: Yeah, I'd love to update you.
5: And again, Thursday, you've got your webinar for folks to tune into. I presume, like you say, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, people can
4: find out. Exactly. Yeah, they thank can you. find out there in more details. Dave Welcome Barbat- so to
5: Utah. Thank you. This is Radioactive on your Community Connection, 90.9 FM. want to talk about wolves on the show today. Dr. Nathan Varley, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Yellowstone Wolf Tracker. I mean, that kind of sums it up.
7: It it certainly does. It's a business that focuses on enjoying the wolves of the park.
5: And you take people on tours or just kind of let people know where to go see or how does it work exactly what you do?
7: It is a guided service where we kind of know where to look and uh, help people to find and learn more about the wolf packs of the park.
5: Okay. And Kara McGarry, In Our Nature Guiding Services, you're also with us today. You're up near Gardner. You take groups, I guess, summer and winter on tours, and I presume that includes wolves as well.
8: Yep. Uh, wolves are a very popular thing that a lot of people, uh, wish to see. Um, and so, um, it's, it, that's a species that we do spend a lot of time going out and watching. Um, I would say that wolves are probably the primary species that clients ask about, uh, with grizzlies as a close second.
5: Oh, and is that because they're elusive and it's pretty easy to see a bison or an elk or what is it about wolves you think?
8: Well, you know, Yellowstone is quite unique because it's the best place in the lower 48 to see wolves in the wild. Um, and also, you know, they aren't a species that a person would be able to count on finding on their own. It does take, even with us guides, it takes um, a, a group effort. You know, we we know what happened yesterday. So that gives us a good basis mm. of where to look. But we also do... Um, you know, we, we rely on a lot of our knowledge and skills of, of how we've seen animals move on the landscape in the past and what, what habitat affinities they tend to have. Yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome. No, totally cool. Um, Dr. Varley, bring you in
5: here. The changes we've seen in laws, I guess, over the past two years, I want to say, both Idaho and Montana seems to have pretty much allowed free range to hunters and killers. Um, that can't be good for the wolves.
7: No, it hasn't, it's really been quite a change for us because previously, especially in Montana regulations protected to some degree the packs that mostly reside inside the park and only occasionally go outside. But this year has really marked a a dramatic change in that dynamic and that uh, the wolves are much more vulnerable to a much higher take by hunters and trappers so that's got us very concerned that the very animals we're relying upon uh, are being taken outside the park at a historical rate.
5: Are more are more wolves leaving the park? They don't know where their ticket ends, so to speak?
7: They, they certainly don't really know where that boundary is. Yeah. Um, I, I think they've always strayed from the park, even though their core territories are well within the park. Uh, it's just the nature of wolves to to move around and, and, and search for prey. And uh, I think that the big difference is just, there's so many more hunters and hunter opportunity Mm. out there uh, which is resulting in more dead wolves.
5: And again, this isn't only hunting, right? I understand the law changes have allowed trapping, snaring. Uh, You can shoot them at night. Um, It seems like this is kind of an open season on just go shoot them. Or kill them any way you want.
7: That's how I would describe it. Yeah. The, the, the changes <laughs> well, have certainly opened up so many more ways, uh, a, a means to which people can be successful well, at taking a wolf. And you we know, were really alarmed about things like uh, baiting and snaring and shooting at night, which were <laughs> things that our state never have embraced until this moment.
5: What's the enthusiasm, do you think, for this? wide open season now what is it just a way to stick it to the feds um are there really that many hunters that want to go trap kill snare shoot at night i mean this is huge this is a huge shift it seems to me
7: it's a very huge shift and i would say that uh the people actually engage in this activity are a very small segment of the montana population Mm. and so you ask a great question like what's brought on this enthusiasm this fervor to kill more wolves across the state and I don't think there is a great economic argument for it. I don't think it's about solving any particular problems that aren't already being addressed in better ways. I think you kind of hit it when you said stick it to the feds, but I describe it more as, as almost, you know, stick it to the other side in our deeply partisan uh-huh. politics uh, that wolves unfortunately symbolize a sort of progressive liberal agenda in the West.
5: Huh. Well, we could talk about toxic masculinity all day on another show. (laughs) Kara McGarry, in our nature, guiding services, free range hunting and snaring and trapping and killing of wolves. What's that do for a business like yours?
8: Well, it certainly reduces the number of wolves that we have to show our clients. And well, I mean, yes,
5: obviously, but in terms of does this put people out of work? Um, does it make your customers pissed off and unhappy because you can't find one? Um, it seems to me that, that there's been so much discussion about bloodthirsty wolves, the economics of people like you who depend on them kind of get left in the, in the, in the wayside.
8: Right. And we have a pretty unique situation. So, so to answer part of your question from earlier, uh, we, I am getting emails every day, multiple emails, um, from people who are past clients, um, mm. who are concerned about this situation. Um, and, you know, our situation in, as, as Montana businesses right on the edge of Yellowstone is really unique because, um, tourism is such a huge piece of the economy locally. Um, it's, it's far greater than, than ranching. And um, and you know agricultural production or or what we would call outfitters who are who are hunting outfitters, um, mm. they're a tiny tiny piece of the local economy in our in our area, um, and um, our estimates are that we've had around eighty million dollars in in tourism revenue, um, on on the northern gateways to Yellowstone in 2021. Um, based on on data adjusted for visitation and um, and also for inflation. Um, mm. The other thing that I think is astounding is that um, this year, 10% of the wolves that have been killed in Montana have been taken from, less than half a percent of the state's total area which is right here on the boundary of yellowstone so here the wolves and the ability to see them alive is really a thing of huge value and it's also where we're having the biggest impact to our wolf population so those two things together create a lot of concern um we don't yet know how this is going to play out nathan can probably talk about the way things were in 2012 when we had a very high, um, high wolf hunting year, that impacted mm. the park's population. Um, so we're we're we have a lot of concerns, but we'll see how things play out.
5: Yeah, I mean, if if somebody wants to see a wolf, they're probably not going to be happy with a bison. So um, it is it is an issue. I mean, Dr. Varley, I understand there's a bounty, so you can go kill them and get a and get money. Uh, It just seems kind of, there seems to be a weird bloodlust. And I wonder if some of this, some of this is because there are petitions out there to relist the gray wolf as endangered. Um, And I wonder, at least in Utah, it seems to me the more the feds do, the more the state wants to say, kill, kill, kill.
7: Yeah, I I see that dynamic as well. It's unfortunate, I think often this debate is really kind of framed as kind of a Yellowstone versus Montana we'll just say in our situation but I, I really think it should be you know Montanans against Montanans because Kara and i are Montanans we employ people we pay our taxes in this state uh, i don't know why our pleas along the lines of the economics aren't really being heard by a, a sort of pro business administration in the state So we're kind of left with, well, maybe the federal government will help us. Maybe we can get them relisted and that will protect our livelihoods in the long run. I I think the federal government has a compelling case to look at that that, uh, these threats that we've talked about are are, are so great that can we really trust the states, Mm -hmm. whether it be Utah or Montana, to 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 take care of wolf populations in a, in a rational, responsible way. Uh, I, I don't think they do. I think the, the state have kind of seceded their, their uh, authority and uh, to, the, to the federal government to take control of these populations to safeguard them for the future.
5: And like you say, it becomes incredibly adversarial for many reasons. For folks interested in your work or want to be involved or come and have a Yellowstone wolf tracking
7: experience, where should they go? Uh, Check out wolftracker.com. That's us.
5: Kara McGarry, In Our Nature, guiding services. Summer, winter, year-round, you can take people out. Again, easy to find a bison, maybe not so easy to find a wolf. How can people learn
8: more? So we're at inournature.com with hyphens in between the words.
5: And are you optimistic that uh, something will be done here that the feds might step in and relist or too soon to tell?
8: We'll see. It's really difficult to understand all the complex Mm. um, processes and, and pressures that um, our, our fish and wildlife service is under around this issue. And of course, when they're making that decision, they're making that decision about a lot of different, um you know over over a huge scale and it's gonna affect a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. Um, and so one of the things that that I'm doing and Nathan's working on it as well um, is working at more of the local level um, because okay. all politics are local. And so we're 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 addressing that as well.
5: Thank you very much, Kara, Kara McGarry, our nature guiding services, thank you, Dr. Nathan Varley. Yellowstone Wolf Tracker. Thank you for your time. If something changes or evolves, let's discuss more.
7: You bet. Thanks for having us on. Well,
5: thank you to you both.
0: Thank you. And that is community co-host Nick Burns wrapping tonight's Radioactive and a conversation about Yellowstone Wolves with Dr. Nathan Varley of Yellowstone Wolf Tracker and Kara McGarry of In Our Nature Guiding Services. My thanks to Nick Burns and all of our guests this hour, helping us plug into our community. Be sure to check tonight's show notes for a link to the folks and their organizations and consider getting involved in one of the causes discussed this evening. Questions, comments, suggestions for the show, you can email me, Laura Jones, at radioactive at krcl.org. All right, did you notice the big full moon the last couple of nights? It's called the wolf moon. So given our guests, the wolf moon, We're going to go out with a little Warren Zevon, Werewolves of London on KRCL 90.9. Have a great night. Thanks for listening, everybody.